Please rise for the reading of the Holy Scripture. We read today from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the word of God for the people of God. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm Phil Jamison. Uh, I'm an elder in the Tennessee Conference and a frequent attender here at Brentwood. Janet, my wife, is a member. As, of course, as an elder in the United Methodist Church, I'm not fit to be a member of a local church any longer. But I appreciate your toleration of me, and particularly uh, in this opportunity to, to share in, in, this, in this great pulpit. We're continuing a series this month on the core values of the Brentwood United Methodist Church. Were you aware that we have core values? Well, now you are. Allison got us started off uh, in a great way last week when she talked about the importance of all of us discovering the particular ministry to which we've been called. At Brentwood, ministry is not supposed to be, in other words, simply for a select group of people, and it's most certainly not to be only for the staff, but each one of us, all of us, are called to a particular place in which to serve a particular way in which to serve. Now today, with the second core value that we're taking up this this summer, we are going to talk not so much any longer about the call, but the one who does the calling. In other words, today we turn our attention to what it means to be Christ-centered. You can see it up there on the screen. At Brentwood, we passionately strive to stay focused on Christ alone. And following the example of Christ, we seek to live holy lives, sharing the love and grace of Christ with all persons. But how exactly do we do that? In other words, what does it actually mean for us to be Christ-centered? Well, we're not the first Christians to ask that question. Therefore, we turn to the Scriptures, and there we discover another group of believers 
who are really asking that very same question. What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean for us to claim that our community is centered in Christ? In other words, what does it mean when we sing something as wonderful as In Christ Alone or the other hymns that we are singing today? Now, as I was getting ready for this and contemplating this question this past week, I was reminded of the old preacher's story about a pastor who was giving the children's message during church. And of course, as we've often seen for this part of the service, he'd gather all the children around them, around him and give a brief lesson before dismissing them to children's church. On this particular Sunday, he was using squirrels, that's right, there you see it, squirrels as an object lesson because he wanted to talk about an industry and preparation. So he started out by saying to the kids, I'm going to describe something and I want you to raise your hand when you know what it is. The children nodded eagerly. Now this thing, the pastor says, lives in trees and he eats nuts. No hands are going up. And it's gray. The pastor's beginning to worry a little bit. And it has a long, bushy tail. Well, now the children are really kind of looking at each other, but still no hands are going up. Finally, the pastor says, and it jumps from branch to branch and chatters and flips its tail when it gets excited. Finally, to the great relief of the pastor, one little boy tentatively raises his hand The pastor, breathing a sigh of relief, calls on him, and the little boy says, well, I know that we're always supposed to say Jesus, but that sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) We're going to get along just fine. I appreciate that. And that's that's the last joke for the morning, at least that last one I have planned, so... You see, the kids were so used to telling the preacher what he wanted to hear that they became confused by the question. Now, for our purposes, however, today, the little boy really did answer correctly, or at least correctly as to how the Apostle Paul would answer. Because for Paul, the answer, ever and always, in so many words, is Jesus. He is the beginning point and the end point. And what that means is we must deal with him in all the middle points as well, that being the case. That's it. Full stop. End of the story. Without Jesus, in other words, we have nothing. Without Jesus, we're just another group of somewhat like-minded folks working on similar projects, trying our best to make the world a better place. All good things. But the apostle has bigger fish to fry, you might say. He's realized that we're called to something far, far greater than simply doing our part or helping as we see fit. Paul is arguing here that we're part of something which is earth-shattering, something that is really unimaginable to us, the very transformation of the world. You saw it as you came in today. And that is a work that's far too great for any of us. And so once again, the answer is Jesus. And so Paul writes, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up 
and established in the faith, just as you are taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What Paul is telling us that as important it is for us to receive Christ, there is so much more to being a Christian, so much more to living a life that is Christ-centered. We are called to abide in him. And so Paul utilizes three metaphors here to make his point. First, like a tree, you and I are called to be rooted in Christ, deriving our very life from having sunk deep into him. We use it somewhat different. We use pretty much the same metaphor when we talk about the, the, the vine and the branches. As Jeremiah reminds us, we're called to be like a tree planted by water that sends its roots out by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So to be centered in Christ means to have sunk one's roots deep in and bearing fruit. So how do we go deeper? Well, there's tremendous opportunities at at Brentwood to do just that. Bible studies, Sunday school classes, fellowship groups, ways for us to sink our roots deep into Christ. Second, Paul says, shifting the metaphor, you and I are called to be built up. This metaphor shifts from an organic one, but it's not really all that different. In other words, you and I, Paul says, are projects under construction. We are called to develop in Christ's grace. And of course, this is fundamental to our Methodist Wesleyan identity. You thought we were done with that service, that, that series, but we really never get past that. As United Methodists, we recognize one another as Christians who are in the midst of becoming Christian. I meant to say it exactly that way. You and I are Christians who are in the process of becoming Christian. We are buildings that are going on to completion even though we're not there yet. But we recognize in one another the ongoing work of Christ. And so we're called to love one another. We're called to be patient with one another. We're called to altogether realize that God is not done with any of us yet. But Paul finally says that we don't get too comfortable with the progress that we may have made. He challenges us with the third metaphor, be established. In other words, we are works in progress, but there's supposed to be a little bit of progress. We may keep tripping and sometimes even falling, but you and I are being empowered to keep walking. We're called to grow stronger in the faith and therefore our witness to one another and to the world. And so we don't give up. Finally, Paul calls the Colossians, and this is crucial. Paul calls the Colossians to abound in thanksgiving. And what he means by that is that no matter how deep your roots may sink, how tall your building rises, or how firm your foundation becomes, never forget this. Never, never forget that this is all the work of Jesus Christ in you. None of the growth, none of the progress has come through our efforts alone. Instead, the Lord who called you has been working in you, bringing you to completion. And therefore, you and I are called to be thankful, grateful for all that the Lord is doing. 
I heard someone once say, playing on the old, the philosophical, uh, the Descartian philosophical equation, I think, therefore I am. I heard someone once say that a Christian really ought to be saying, I thank, therefore I am. Because in thanking, we realize how good God has been to us. In thanking, we recognize that his work, though, although may not be done in us yet, it is continuing. And so gratitude is essential for us to be Christ-centered. So there, that's that. Problem of Christ-centeredness solved, right? Well, maybe not quite so fast. Because as I said before, we are not the first Christians to wonder what does it really mean to be centered in Christ. And apparently we're not the first ones either to try to complicate the answer to that question. Sure we get it. Jesus really is pretty awesome, but there's gotta be something more to it, right? Maybe a set of ideas or working at particular projects. We get that Jesus is important, but shouldn't there be more to the equation? And Paul's answer to this is a resounding no. See verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. There was a big problem in that ancient church, and we don't really know exactly what it was. We're not really certain what the philosophy was or the human tradition of which Paul is speaking here. The scholars disagree about it, but that's not unusual because scholars are paid to disagree about things like this. You get five scholars together and there's going to be at least eight opinions. So nobody particularly knows exactly what the nature of the controversy was, what this human philosophy was. But what we can be certain about was the, is this. The heart of the problem was the all-too-human thought that there must be more to this Christianity business than just who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. In other words, the temptation for them, and maybe for us, is to go the Christ plus route. There must be more to this than simply receiving and abiding in him Surely we got to do our part now, right? We have to, in some way, earn that gift, don't we? That's been given. Right? Well, let me be honest and confess to you that after all these years, I'm in the 30th year of my ordained ministry as a pastor, as a seminary professor, and now with a foundation. I'm still tempted to think that there's something that I need to add to his work in order to make it truly work. In some way, in some manner, I'm tempted to attempt to pay back a gift that has been so freely given. And maybe I'm not the only one here today who's tempted. How about you? Have you ever tried to pay for this glorious, gracious gift so freely given? And it isn't like we do it in overt, obnoxious ways. Most of the time, we slip into this air by doing good things, volunteering our time, or giving our money. Now, let me pause right there, because I'm not against either volunteering our time or certainly giving our money. Don't tell Davis I said that. Our problem is 
as we're responding to grace, by doing things that we are called to do, it's easy to slip over into thinking. But now this. Now, Jesus, I'm really a good boy or girl, aren't I? Now I'm really worthy of the gift given to me, aren't I? We don't slip into this through bad things. We sometimes slip into this in doing the very good things that we're called to do. In other words, we have to get out of this Christ plus business and come to see that it is Christ alone that is essential for us. To all these powerless attempts on our part, Paul says a resounding no, and he goes on to remind us of the fullness of Jesus' work. And he does that in this closing section of what we read today, verses 13 through 15. Paul here describes in wonderful terms the complete power of Jesus' work using two remarkable metaphors. The cancellation of a debt and a triumphal march. The first of these, think about the image of an IOU. There, it's easy to think about now, isn't it? There is a debt that needs to be repaid. And it turns out the debtor cannot afford to repay it. The great preacher of the early church, John Chrysostom, put it this way. See to it that we do not become debtors to the old contract. Christ came once he found the certificate of our ancestral indebtedness that Adam wrote and signed. He's playing on an old image, the idea that Adam signed up for something that he couldn't pay for. Adam contracted the debt, and Chrysostom continues, by our subsequent sin, we've increased the amount owed. We just kept the credit on a rolling, never paying off those cards. Increasing the debt, Chrysostom is saying to us. In this contract, he continues, are written a curse, a sin, and a death, and the condemnation of the law. But Christ took all of these away and pardoned them. Then quoting St. Paul, the old preacher continues, the decree of our sins which was against us, he has taken it completely away, nailing it to the cross. He does not only erase the decree, nor does he only blot it out, but nails it to the cross so that no trace of it might remain. This is why he did not erase it, but tore the debt in pieces. In other words, Jesus does this remarkable work of forgiveness in full view of everyone so that you and I need never doubt its sufficiency. This is no private matter between us and the Lord, something that you and I have just kind of solely worked, our, worked out between us and God. This is the objective reality, Paul is arguing, of what has decisively changed the very course of history and entirely independent of what you and I could ever do. This has been done for us. And so I invite you, as we all need to be invited, believe the good news of the gospel. Our past is forgiven. Look to the cross and leave your past there. And then Paul continues, because Jesus' work is not just about the past, but it's about today 
and the future. He continues with one more image, which may seem a little strange to us. Strange because none of us have ever seen one. Here is the image of a conquering general who leads a a parade of his vanquished foes and all that he has taken from them. If you've ever been to Rome, you maybe have seen the Arch of Titus. Constructed in honor of the Roman general who would briefly reign as emperor of Rome. The arch has special importance for us in the church and for us who are readers of the Bible because one of the victories depicted upon it, one of the bas reliefs carved into the arch, is the defeat of the uprising of Israel in 70 AD. One of the most important events in the history of the church. It changes everything. There you can see the menorah, the candlestick that the Romans have taken from the temple before they destroyed it. The leaders having to, being forced to march behind the general. You see, the Romans really did love a parade because they loved a public spectacle. But for them, this was far more than entertainment. You could say this was a mass communication because the parade would march through the cities and the towns and the countryside, and people knew it was coming, and a message was being sent. You could say it was the social media of the day, but the Romans really weren't worried about having likes or retweets. No, they were sending a message by way of the public humiliation and the agony of their foes, forced to march behind them of about 1,500 miles from Jerusalem to Rome. They were saying that the Roman victory is complete. Don't mess with us. And so the seemingly never-ending march sent the message loud and clear to those who saw it and to those who heard it that it was approaching. The power of Rome is absolute. The, The message is being sent. The march is being understood. Yield to its strength or else. And this is the image that Paul is using to describe the work of Jesus Christ. Well, that doesn't really sound much like him, does it? Not at first thought. Doesn't sound anything like Jesus. But Paul is telling us here that it really was Jesus and not any Roman general who really ultimately defeated all of the enemies of you and me. Sure, his victory parade looks rather different, but Jesus went on a march. And it wasn't only an IOU, of course, that was nailed to the cross. It was our Lord and Savior. And he went there out of determination both to forgive us and to defeat any powers that might come between you and me, that might come between you and the good life, between you and enjoying the goodness of creation. He defeated those powers and forced them to march publicly so that we could know that we need not worry about tomorrow. So I have to ask you, are there things that you might be attempting to add to the work of Christ, either to make up for your past or to deal with a problem you face today 
In other words, are you trying to buy something that has already been given to you? I'm going to close with this. There's a story told about the great escape artist Harry Houdini, and it, it may be an apocryphal one, but it's too good a story not to tell, so here we go. He supposedly would issue a challenge, you know, on the vaudeville route, when he would go from one town to the next, he would issue a challenge that he could escape from any jail cell in which they would lock him. And he always kept his promise. Within one hour, Houdini escaped from every jail cell that they would lock him in. Well, he came to this one town, the story goes, and they put him in the cell, slammed the door shut behind them, and as soon as everyone was out of sight, Houdini took out this small, flexible, but very strong piece of metal that he could use to pick any lock. But there was something unusual about this lock, and he worked at it. Fifteen minutes went by, and now Houdini's beginning to wonder. Half hour goes by, and now he's really beginning to sweat. There's something wrong here. This lock is not yielding to my best efforts. Finally, after almost an hour is over, Houdini, exhausted, leans down against the cell door, and to his amazement, it pops open. It had never been locked in the first place. And it turns out that not even Harry Houdini can escape from his cell where the door is already open. All of our efforts can be like that sometimes, trying to open something that's already been opened before us, trying to pay for something that's already been given to us, trying to earn something that we never could. But the Lord offers himself to us. The Lord gives us a way forward. The Lord cares not only about our past, but cares about today and tomorrow. And so he invites you and me to follow him and to join in his victory. He invites you and me to cast all our cares upon him. He invites us to be rooted in him, to be built up in him, and to be established in him, knowing that we really are becoming Christ-centered. That's a core value here at the Brentwood United Methodist Church, and may it ever be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.